Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Monday Morning ATM, which goes out every Monday at 8 a.m. This is the podcast where we distill all of the insights from all of the distraction, noise, articles, emails, forwards, and so on that you receive in your inbox every day. This podcast appears as a newsletter on our website. If you go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash promo, you can put in your details and you'll receive the newsletter that accompanies this podcast. All the articles we reference, all of the pieces that we talk about, the links will be in that newsletter. And if you go to Strategy Skills Podcast, you can find this series appearing there. And if you don't know where to find it, go to any podcast app and type in Strategy Skills. So let's look at some of the big things we are noticing this week. And what we've done is we've decided to focus on one particular overarching theme. And you're going to see that that theme finds its way into all of the big stories this week. Firstly, we're going to talk about risk and the fact that not all risk is equal. The Financial Times did a fantastic piece looking at why the COVID virus had a much less impact on Africa than many people expected. Because the expectation was that the more developed European economies, United States, Canada, Asian economies, and so on, should have performed better than the less developed, or for lack of a better word, countries with less disposable income and resources to react. But Africa was not as hard hit as many people had expected. There are some theories for this. One of them is that due to the fact that populations in some parts of the world tend to have access to less health protection, they have developed a built-in immunity. This is just a theory. It may be right or wrong. Irrespective of the reason, it's an interesting article. But it does raise a more deeper question. And this is the insight. Everyone is now talking about requiring or developing a pandemic plan. But what is a pandemic plan? How do you measure the risk? How do you measure the impact? How do you measure the fact that at any time in the future, a pandemic can roll through any country in the world, whether it's a flu-like symptom to something else, and it can wreak devastating havoc. How do you measure that? So if you have a consulting background, you know that a lot of people talk about the risk of implementation, which really is kindergarten discussion on risk, so we're not going to have that, even though it's important. And then if you speak to financial people, they'll talk about WAC, the fact that they can move the discounted rate up or down to cater for risk. Now, the problem with WAC, and there are many, many, many problems with WAC, and I suggest you Google it to look at the weighted average cost of capital and why using it as a discount rate to cater for and measure all risks is inappropriate. The most important reason is that WAC works best when looking at a discrete project where the risks are not that difficult to predict. If you're looking at whether you should make a decision to invest in a country that may be hit by a pandemic, WAC is not going to help you with that. So WAC has severe limitations. So how do you develop a pandemic plan? Well, here's the thing you've got to think about. Each pandemic plan has to be different. If you are thinking that, hey, 
We can sit down for the next three months and come up with a pandemic plan that's going to be perfect to address every single pandemic that can ever occur in any of our offices around the world. You're going to come up short. I'll explain why. The world right now is obsessed with the COVID virus, or at least this version of the COVID virus, the 19 version, whatever it's called. But the way you respond to the COVID virus would be very different from the way you'd respond to another pandemic. So the first thing you need to have is what Jamie Dimon would have called a fortress balance sheet. That means enough cash on hand to see yourself through. But the next thing you've got to understand is that beyond that, there's not a lot you can do because each pandemic is going to be different. For example, for those insiders who have access to our advanced knowledge management system, you can log in and you can look at a full analysis we did for a fictitious African country to understand how they would respond to a pandemic that is going to affect that country and most likely to affect that country. The thing you've got to understand is it's not just about risk. It's not just about costs. It's about the return you're going to generate once you respond to that pandemic. And what you will see in this analysis, which you can edit and use for yourself as you want to for your own planning, is that you have to be able to break down the entire activity chain from the time someone gets infected to how they'll go through the treatment process and what would happen to them afterwards. And because each pandemic is different, the treatment process is different. The costs incurred are different. The treatments are different. The times are different. The infrastructure is different. The kind of resources you need are different. Where employees can work is going to differ. Every single pandemic needs to be mapped out in certain ways. But the treatment path has to be mapped out. You have to understand the benefits case. You want employees to be well enough so that they work and they work as productively as before. But you've got to understand the cost associated with providing treatment, keeping productivity up, reducing absenteeism, changes to your infrastructure and changes to your system to support your employees. That is how you respond to, an, to a pandemic. It's not as if there's just one pandemic strategy. If you go for one pandemic strategy, at best, you're going to have something that's so generic. It's never really going to help you when a specific pandemic rolls through. Now, the next big theme that we're seeing again related to risk is what I call strategy risk. Asia and Nikkei did a, and Nikkei Asia did a very good piece about um, how Mitsubishi is going to be, I think they don't say it directly, but they're going to be effectively canceling or severely curtailing their plan to build an aerospace division. And the summary of the piece is that this was a major initiative of the Japanese government because they wanted to build the aerospace sector and they had the capability in the 70s. But once they shut it down, they've never been able to build that critical mass of skills, even though they've brought in engineers from, as they say, Canada and so on. It was so hard to get the Canadians to work with the Japanese that the so-called benefits of bringing foreign expertise never came through. There's another good piece about how the new CEO of Gap is trying to bring focus to Gap stores. I mean, as she says very well, each of the stores in the so-called Gap empire tends to have been a bit muddied up in terms of what they focus for. So she's going for focus. There's a risk there. What if she focuses on the wrong thing? There's a story about Facebook is moving into gaming and how the Chinese are spending a fortune on building the capability to fabricate their own chips so that any potential disruptions to their supply chain would not be a significant problem. Now, all those articles exemplify what I call strategy risk. 
Strategy risk is a risk you take when you make a bet on a market. Now, the most important insight here from all these articles is that there is no analysis anywhere in the world. It does not exist. That is going to tell you with very high degree of certainty that a direction you take the company down is going to pan out. That is why when you read about Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and so on, and even the guy who runs Microsoft, the newspapers always say they took a bet on cloud. It is a bet. And they're benefiting from that bet. And it's called a bet because there was no certainty when they started. And in fact, many people said they shouldn't do it. Strategy risk is how do you invest in your current business while planning to cannibalize your current skill, product, or service to build something that's going to displace what you're currently doing. You can call that diversification if you want, cannibalization. It could be a combination of both, whereby you're not necessarily cannibalizing your current business, but you're adding new sources of revenue. That's diversification. At other times, the business you diversify into is going to cannibalize your current business. You don't want to be distracted by management moving into new areas, but oftentimes you have to do it. Like automotive companies are seeing today, when they've realized they've been too late to go into hydrogen and electric vehicles. Now, if you're an insider, what we've done is we've mapped out the thought process, the strategy thinking, and the steps that an executive team should have in a workshop if they're going to decide how they're going to develop a flexible strategy whereby you're focusing on what's important today, but you're also doing things that give you the upside if something new comes up. Insiders who have access to our advanced knowledge management system can log in, edit those slides, and use those slides to run your own executive workshop. That's an important decision companies have to be making today. It can be done. There's a technique for that. When I was a partner back serving companies, I didn't develop the technique, but I built off things other partners had been doing in the oil and gas sector. We built it for our sectors. And then today you see tech partners doing the same thing, building off the work we did. So that's strategy risk. The third theme we are seeing is what I call the risk of defense versus the risk of offense. When we talk about risk, we tend to think all implementation has the same risk. It doesn't. Some good pieces to read about this is if you look at the Financial Times, they did a great piece about how Amazon is trying to enter, well, not trying to enter, they're in the Indian market, but they're trying to take on the established Indian players. Now, Amazon has a pretty good foothold. But of course, it's one of the few markets with over a billion people and the only truly open market to foreigners, India is an important market. There's a story about how China's ant group is about to go public and that's in Nikkei Asia. And the fact is that's going to be the world's largest financial services firm, maybe not by market cap today, but pretty soon. And of course, Microsoft earnings have gone through the roof and that's also from the uh, Financial Times and that's largely driven by the bet taken on cloud services. Now, what you've got to distinguish here is that there's a difference between the risk that a company, a business, a person takes when you're defending a position, and there's a risk that you take when you go on the offense. When you're defending a position, the risk you usually take is that you pull back resources from everything else, like things you should be doing for the future, to defend your position. And the danger is that you spend so long defending your position that you don't have the where were all the resources to invest for the future? And sometimes you defend something that's going to be cannibalized anyway. We've seen that in the automotive sector, 
where a lot of car companies went in there and defended their position so carefully during the 28 financial crisis that they never really invested in electric. They pulled back resources. When you go on the offensive, the danger here is that you leave your core exposed to an attack or you milk the core for so much cash to invest in the offense that you never actually defend the core. Now, I think it's easy to see here that the kind of capabilities and skills and risks you have to manage are very different if you are under the threat of an attack or if you are the one attacking. So when companies talk about the risk of market moves, you've got to figure out, am I attacking or am I defending? Because the moves are going to be very, very different. And a large part of that is the ability to fund yourself. If, again, you're an insider who has access to advanced knowledge management system, we have a number of firstly proposals, but also studies where you can see how we've helped companies firstly understand how their cash flows are going to change, measure that impact, prepare the slides and the communication for how they would bring that to the investment community and how they would manage that message. That's an important skill companies need to have today. Whether you're defending a position because you're running out of cash or whether you're on the attack because someone's been weakened. The final theme about risk is geopolitical risk. And the Financial Times has a piece whereby European nations that are members of NATO are thinking about how much more money they need to spend to insulate themselves from threats from other countries that pose a risk to them. Now, the thing about business is that geopolitical risk is usually given the least amount of attention in planning. But it's probably the biggest risk because bad things happen geopolitically, whether it's flooding, whether your assets are nationalized, whether a country topples, whether there's an invasion, these things happen. When I was a partner many years ago, I worked with a mobile phone company. And one of the biggest questions they raised to us is how do we um, raise money in an extremely hostile part of the world, whereby it's very different, it's very difficult for them to prove to the banks that the assets they've collateralized or put up against the loan can actually be seized by the bank to be resold. And you can read a, a version of that a letter that we put together whereby we simulate that discussion so that insiders with access to our knowledge management system can use that letter to see how to write to senior executives, but also how to have these very technical discussions in a very simple, direct way. But the other thing we have for insiders who are members of the knowledge management system is we've put together a study for you whereby you can see how we methodically analyze the investment in a theoretical unstable country for an investment company like a pension fund and son who wants to buy into this company. You can edit the slides, make whatever changes you want and use the methodology as needed. So sort of the final wrap up words, you want to talk about the following things. Every time we do Monday morning 8 a.m., I always go back and look at the big stories and I reference the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Nikkei Asia because I read those publications and I think the quality of reporting is very important. But also they cover important parts of the world. Nikkei Asia obviously very heavily focused on Asia Pacific, including Australia. Financial Times is global but tends to be very European and in, in, in the Wall Street Journal tends to be very focused on the United States and the G7 countries. I want to talk about the risk of counsel. That's the final risk I'm going to talk about in this theme of risk. Whether you know this or not, the most influential person in your life is the editor of the newspaper you read. What you read is your counsel. Your friends will influence you, yes. But by and large, they are forwarding you things on Facebook, um, Twitter, and whichever other social media account you use, but also an email and so on. 
I think it's very important that if you are reading a lot of the Financial Times, or the Wall Street Journal, or the Washington Post, you need to read extensively the writings of that editor. So whoever is the managing editor of the Wall Street Journal, if you read that, go and read their writing. Because that is the person who's determining what you're going to read, when you're going to read it, and the, the angle they're going to put on things. And if you know the angle they're taking, you know how to assess, change, think, vet, or discard some of their views. Every single newspaper has an agenda. That's a fact. If you think there's, an agenda, there's a newspaper out there that's perfectly objective, they're only objective relative to their view of the world. But everyone's going to report their facts relative to what they think is important. And of course, sometimes they will choose not to report a story if it doesn't fit into their worldview. Because obviously there's many interesting things happening around the world and newspapers have limited space. So whether or not you agree with the fact that newspapers have an agenda, the fact that you can agree they have limited space. And they are picking things that are relevant to their audience. They are not going to publish stories that are not relevant to their audience. No matter what a newspaper says, because if a newspaper does that, they will lose their audience. The job of every reporter, and you can see it in all writing, is they always do the, they always follow the a certain format. They will use anecdotes to humanize a story so you feel sympathy and understand what is happening. They'll almost always start a story by telling you about someone who's going through some experience they are talking about. Then they will give you the data to support the elements mentioned in that anecdote. But they'll only frame it in a way that's useful and important to their readers. In the most simple example, if I like reading about knitting, and I'm reading a knitting newspaper, and that newspaper starts talking about fishing, I'm going to be turned off because I'm not interested in fishing. So you can see that this concept whereby newspapers only report what's interesting to their readers is not that alien. It's 100% true. Things you've got to consider is, what is the leaning of this newspaper? What is the leaning of this editor? Because that will tell you more about the story than the story itself. The time a story is published is actually very important. If newspapers want to kill a story, they publish it on Friday evening around 5 o'clock or after things close because things just die off in the weekend news cycle. The date of a story also matters. Sometimes a newspaper will break a story close to when it can influence an event. The position of the story, does it appear buried right in the back or is it given prominence if it should have prominence? Of course, was a story covered in the first place also matters. What is the overall message in that story relative to the overall positioning of that newspaper? If it's a conservative newspaper, just one way to obviously categorize newspapers, and it posts a liberal viewpoint, that's nice, but has the overall position of the newspaper changed? Or is a conservative newspaper publishing a liberal viewpoint just to say, you know what, we actually are open to all views? And again, I don't want to make this political, but what if a newspaper that follows the principles of free markets starts introducing a columnist to talk about how to regulate markets. Does that mean that they're now open to all ideas? Well, I would say if you have a columnist writing about regulating markets, it's just an opinion section. You also know that we've released a new educational novel called Mavis. Now, Mavis reads as a dystopian sci-fi thriller about a productivity paradox, but ultimately it is a novel about productivity strategy. And it's written in this new format where there's a deep storyline where it's a novel about productivity strategy. If you want to understand productivity, you should read Mavis, which is now available on Amazon. We also released a strategy journal. 
which takes you step by step through what we are doing. If you buy them soon and post a review and send us a copy of that review, we will give you a complimentary one month access to the accompanying video programs that go into the concepts in the book in a lot more detail. And the other big update that's coming up is we are launching a full knowledge management system, which is going to have editable PowerPoint documents, editable proposals available to insiders. But it's much more than that. For those of you who know, the ability to be able to see a complete study, use it, edit it as a blueprint for the work you are doing is the difference between whether you're not just a successful consultant, but whether you're successful in industry. Same with the proposal. It's one thing to want to meet a client about strategy. It's another thing to know how to sell it and to see a blueprint. As always, I hope you enjoyed the format and I'll see you again next week, Monday. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.